Welcome to Avatar with Academics. My name is Sam Mulberry, and I have never watched Avatar The Last Airbender. And I'm Annie Berglund, and I have watched it before. Annie, we are on the cusp of the finale of the finale. Um, This is our penultimate episode of Avatar with Academics. Uh, We have made it to Book 3 Fire, Chapter 19, Sozin's Comet, Part 3, Into the Inferno. So this is the this is the episode before the final episode. This is part three of the four part finale mm. uh, finale movie. Part two ended, you know, uh, right on the cusp of confrontation. Right, we see the comet coming. We see mm. Ozai ready. Um, we see our heroes all going off in different directions to um, kind of face their destiny. Um, you know, and, and, and I was really interested in watching this episode to see how deep into the battle we were going to go. Like mm-hmm. there was a chance in my mind that like, we might actually see Sozin defeated in this episode. We don't, um, uh, instead they, they do something different with the end of this, but I, this is an interesting episode because this is maybe one of the most actiony episodes, one of the most quiet. I mean, it's not as quiet as Appa alone, because the main character Napa alone doesn't talk, um, but uh, but or excuse me, Appa's Lost Days. There's not an episode called Appa Alone. It's Appa. <laughs> um, but but this has a lot of um, silent action to it, um, and yeah, and, and th- I mean that, that was one of my big impressions. I thought it was going to be like that, and I love that they kind of delivered on that. And one of the things that I think is a strength of this episode is that some of the things that happen in this episode. If it were in a movie, would be two or three times longer than it is in the show. But because they have to have the economy of this being a, you know, twenty-four minute kids show, like they need to just speed things up a little bit. Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, funny you mentioned that too, because originally I oops, I did some research on Reddit, <laughs> and originally this episode was meant to be the last one. So the Sozin's Comet was just going to be a three-parter. And as the writers were going through this final episode, they were like, we cannot do it justice without extending it into another 25-minute episode. So um, originally they were going to just have the, the battle and then the resolution, um, but we get a little more resolution in the next episode instead. I presume when they were conceiving of this as three episodes that where they bulked up stuff was early on as well. Yeah. And then the resolution, because I I can't imagine that they would have parts one and two exactly as they are and then try to cram everything into this. But they had, and I think they need that time. I actually really like what they did in um, parts one and two uh, leading up to this. And I like that they let this be really the confrontation episode. Yes, I think that if they had made it just the three episodes, the logical places to cut some of that time would be with kind of, mm, we wouldn't call them side characters because obviously Sokka and Suki and Toph are great, but they have their own storyline in this. And I think that's where they probably would have cut some things to say, like, we need to resolve things with Aang and Zuko. Um, But instead we get, I think each character gets like a really strong moment to shine in this episode mm-hmm. um and and that's really exciting and rewarding i didn't think before watching it i wasn't sure if we would get a lot of toff saka suki airtime and we do and it's great yeah quite a bit mm. so before we get into the the episode summary 
I went through in my notes and I just wrote down the four pieces of advice that Ang got because I thought it would be helpful to have these in our minds as we're going through this. So here are the, the four pieces of advice. Roku told him, you must be decisive. Mm-hmm. Kiyoshi told him, only justice will bring peace. Um, Karak told him, actively shape your own destiny and the destiny of the world. And Yan Chen told him, selfless duty calls you to sacrifice your own spiritual needs to do whatever it takes to protect the world. Mm. So I want to think about those things as we go through this episode, but especially as we're pointing towards uh, the resolution, because this episode doesn't give us revolution resolution. It gives us, you know, uh, it ends kind of as I thought it ends with a kind of all is lost moment. Um, And again, this is where you can see this as part of a, of a movie um, rather than an episode of Avatar, because an episode of Avatar, they don't tend to end on moments like this. This is a this is a, a pretty dark ending where you kind of look at everybody and you're afraid, mm-hmm. af- afraid of where they're at. Mm. Can I can I give a couple more things before we go into the summary? Please Sam? do. First of all, uh, just wanted to point out 5.6 million viewers uh, watched when this premiered um so this was premiered as the entire four part uh but an interesting thing is that the only part that won an annie award for uh directing in an animated television production is for part three uh so it won an award for an annie award it's so interesting that you say that because i have multiple moments in here where i said oh this is like bravuro filmmaking like mm. like there are shots that are in this episode that you do not see anywhere else in avatar <clears throat> and avatar is a pretty beautiful show but mm. you see stuff here that you don't see in other episodes and you just don't see in animated uh animated tv shows at least of this time there are so i'm going to point out a couple of those because that is not surprising to me in the least yeah it is gorgeous it's a gorgeous episode Anything else before we get to the summary? Man, I don't know. I think we should just get started, right? All right. So let's dive in. So we open on, it's actually a pretty cool shot. Speaking of shots on this overhead view of the land. So Mm -hmm. from above and we see Sozin's comet move across in front of that. So we get this sense of this God's eye view, but also kind of how close the comet is to uh to the the world that it's this Mm -hmm. is a a pretty low flying comet which maybe explains why the firebenders can harness so much power from this uh and we see we cut from there to zuko and katara flying on appa towards the fire nation and we see that zuko looks worried uh and katara assures him that he'll be able to defeat azula and zuko says i'm not worried about her i'm worried about ang What if he doesn't have the guts to take out my father? What if he loses? And Katara says, Aang won't lose. He's going to come back. He has to. Hmm. And what struck me about this is that uh, historically, Aang has a track record of disappearing. I mean, the, the big like moment in his life was disappearing at a moment like this before. Right. Hmm. And we need to remember, we know where Aang is, but they don't. They just know on the eve of this, you know, world cataclysmic battle, he disappeared. Yeah. And that's what happened when the air nomads were attacked a hundred years ago. The last mm-hmm. time Sozin's comic came. Yeah. He has a track record of disappearing and losing. <laughs> I mean, truly. And, and I think um, 
I wonder if it's because we've watched him deal with the trauma of disappearing last time because it wasn't really his choice that he disappeared. He did not know what was going to happen, but he still grieved over that choice or that moment when he disappeared that um, maybe Katara saw that fallout and thought he will never repeat that mistake again. But at the same time, she she even looks a little uncertain. Like the shot that they do is ama- <laughs> it's amazing drawing. Like that we get this profile view of the two of them on Appa, and like they both are looking out forward, not towards each other, and their brows are furrowed. And it's like th- they want to believe what they're saying, but they're not certain. And we also need to remember that Zuko has less of a track record with Aang. I mean, Katara's been with him this whole time. Zuko's really only been with him for about 10 episodes. So, right. so she has a, she has a little bit different um, history. I mean, what I like about this is we get this seed planted or, or we get reminded about this seed that Katara is the, uh, the image of hope, right? That she's the one who's expressing hope at this moment. When Zuko maybe doesn't have that hope, right? So mm-hmm. she, she, again, Katara, Katara brings hope, which goes all the way back to a lot of the season one stuff. So from here, we cut to the Fire Nation palace and we get um, of the storylines in this episode, what I think is my favorite. Uh, we see Azula and she's getting her hair done and receiving a pedicure and a foot scrubbing from four servant girls uh, in preparation for her coronation. Uh, and she's eating cherries out of this bowl. Can I point out something, too? Yeah. I don't know if this comes up later or now, but. Uh, at some point so we get these so many scenes with her where it's just her and a couple like servants or people everyone is out right like everyone is probably fighting <laughs> uh like taking over bossing say it's really just her and like a select group of people serving her um and in one of these shots i don't remember if it's this one or the next scene we see with her all of the fire in the palace that had been orange and red is now blue fire surrounding her because it's azula and it's such a good like sweet little change that like they didn't even acknowledge but really well done yeah that's in the next scene with the Dai Li when she's kind mm-hmm. of in the throne room yeah you're absolutely right that that um <clears throat> and i remember jasmine griffin talking about this um about how they intentionally use this blue fire for azula which they then echo in the dragons and all this stuff but it, it ends up creating some uh, it allows us to distinguish between the fire from different people, but it also is that it creates some kind of beautiful interplay that we'll see in this episode. Mm. So she's eating uh, cherries from this bowl and her tooth crunches down on a pit and she confronts the servant who's holding the, ch- uh, the cherry bowl. And Azula says, please tell me why on the most important day of my life, you decided to leave a pit in my cherry. Do you realize what could have happened if I hadn't sensed the pit in time? The servant says that she could have choked. And Azula says, yes, then you understand the severity of your crime. And the servant begs for forgiveness. And Azula says, oh, well, since it's a very special day, I will show you mercy. You are banished. Leave the palace immediately. She then snaps at the other servants to keep working. Uh, And Azula says, I won't have my first day as Fire Lord marred by poor foot hygiene as she's getting them to continue to work on her feet. Now, what I love about this is this is setting the stage for showing us that uh, that Azula is slipping into a deep paranoia. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't know the roots of that paranoia quite yet, 
but it's going to be revealed in, in, and I think in a pretty interesting way. Um, but what I love about this is I don't know if this goes, this probably goes all the way back to season two when we start to really get introduced to Azula. Um, I made the case that what I wanted to see was kind of a little bit of like Macbeth, Lady Macbeth out of Azula. And we're getting that here. So in Macbeth, once he, um, you know, once he kills um, Malcolm to take or kills Duncan, excuse me, to take the, the, the throne, then he has all of this paranoia and, and all this stuff. And like, we see that in Azula, she now has the throne. So I'm just patting myself on the back here. I predicted <laughs> we're going to see Azula fire Lord. We're kind of getting that. And I wanted it to have a little Macbeth feel. Now she didn't usurp her father, but she is in this paranoia about, I have this power and people are going to try to take it away from me. People are going to betray me. So she's, we're already seeing that in this scene. Mm. So from here, we cut to Sokka, Toph and Suki um, riding on their eel hound through the water. Which is and, a sweet animal. Yeah. It, uh, the name's kind of awful, but it's pretty cool. Right. How would you describe like- it? It like snakes through the water. It looks like Loch Ness monster, kind of, right? Like it looks like Nessie. Is that Nessie, right? Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> but then, but when it's out of the water, it looks like a like a dog with a really long, snaky tail. Yeah, like a greyhound, kind of, right? Yeah, and we're told in the last episode that they're super fast on land, super fast on water. Why isn't why is everybody not using these? Right. Also, like they're part dog, so they're chill with people. That's true. So, so as they're going through the water, um, Suki says, it's weird to say, but the comet actually looks beautiful. And I loved that they acknowledged this because mm. to me, this points to one of the themes of this episode, which is this is, this is an episode about power and destruction and battle and conflict and violence. But as we said before, it's maybe one of the most beautiful visual episodes that they that they make and and Suki's basically uttering this saying it's strange that this thing that's potentially bringing the world to an end is so beautiful yeah and also a good point that it's not it's not this natural phenomenon it's the way that it's harnessed like that's the part that's disturbing right it's like it's not what it's not the fact that people can do these things is that they do do these things, right? Like that people, not that people have the ability to do great and to do terrible things, but it's like when we actually do that, when we, when we actually make those choices, that's when it becomes really disturbing. Um, but it doesn't take the beauty away from the fact that like we have that option. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Because the comet for the firebenders represents this power but it doesn't necessarily mean the power needs to be used to destroy. The power could be used for good. Yeah. And we'll see. We have firebenders who are on the side of Aang and like we in Aang himself as a firebender, like it, it didn't hit me until this episode where I was like, oh, yeah, no, the comet's good for Aang too, right? Like right. it's actually helpful for him. Um, it doesn't need to just be something only destructive. Right, right. So Suki talks about how beautiful it is, and Toph says, too bad the Fire Lord's about to use this to destroy the world. So they reach the shore, and they climb up a rocky slope to stand overlooking the Fire Nation air fleet. And Sokka laments that they're too late because the fleet is already taking off. So at this point, Toph takes action, and she bends the rock beneath them to kind of um, catapult them or launch them into the air 
onto the nearest airship. And there's this great moment where um, Suki and, and Sokka like land on the airship and then they catch Toph because they realize, well, Toph can't see where she's about to land. So they do some fun stuff with Toph in this episode, I think. Mm, yes. And also the music in this episode is amazing. And I think it starts right here. Like when we start, I don't know if it's just like a Suki, Sokka, Toph trio theme, but the music gets really cool. Yes, there's a lot of great music in this in this episode in particular. So from here, we get what is, I think, the first of the kind of major beautiful shots in this uh, in this episode. So we see the camera is it starts on uh, Suki Saka and Toph as they start to run up into the airship and it pulls back in one continuous tracking shot is what I would say. I mean, this is what it would be if you were using a camera tracking shot where it pulls back. So we see the airship. And then the camera continues to move and pull back. So we see the, the fleet of airships all kind of in Chevron formation. And that same shot keeps pulling back till we see the lead airship, which is Ozai's airship. And then it moves in to focus just on Ozai's face. This would be such a complicated shot to do in like in real life with a, I mean, you do it in CGI obviously, but, um, but it's like, it is a very complicated shot and it looks amazing. And when I saw this, I was like, Oh, they've for their finale, they've upped their filmmaking here. They really want to, um, they want to do a couple things that are going to blow you away visually. This would be fun to see on a, on a big screen, I think. Mm-hmm. So from there, we cut back to the fire nation palace. Um, and we see that, Azula is sitting in the darkened throne room and now she's surrounded by blue flames like you were talking about. And we see the Dai Li soldiers uh, enter in and ask Azula why they were summoned. And we see that we see that Azula's hair is still undone, which I think implies that uh, she eventually sent the other servants away as well and banished them. Um, <clears throat> and she says, actually, everything's not all right. Do you know how long it took you to get here? And the Dai Li leader says, you know, a few minutes and Azula says, in which time an assassin could have snuck in, done away with me, and been on his merry way? Is this how you treat your new fire lord with tardiness and disloyalty? And the Daily leader says, the Daily would never betray you. And Azula makes an interesting point here. She says, and I'm sure that's what you told Long Feng before you turned against him and joined me. You are all banished. Goodbye. And we see the Daily march out. And she says, please send in the next group on your way out. <laughs> and we see her looking increasingly paranoid. Mm. I think that point is really interesting that she makes about like, you know, I'm sure you were loyal to Long Fang and you betrayed him, even though she's the one who got them to betray him. She's now assuming that she can't trust anyone. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> when I was watching this with my husband, Mike, he was like, and there goes the most despicable characters. Like we know that Mike hates the Daily uh, more than anyone else, but it's like, yeah, they their loyalty is bought and sold, and uh, like she's not wrong. She's not wrong. Now I'm interested. I mean, we still have another episode here. Like, do we see the Daily again? These are powerful benders, right? And they've mm. been dismissed. They've been banished. Um, does that mean their loyalty is no longer to Azula? Does that mean that they are now potentially joining the fight on the other side? Or do we just not see the Daily anymore? Mm. I'm, I'm curious about that mm. because um, I know Mike is not a fan of them, but like I said, they are, they are pretty powerful figures in this story. 
Yeah. Um, one more point too. I, I'm glad that you noticed the hair. I know it comes up later too, but her hair is, and her whole appearance is such a great detail as well, because throughout the whole series, there's like one scene where we see her without makeup on and it's like briefly in season three. And I think it's like when she's going to bed or something. Now we have, I think, her- I think it's when, I think it's when uh, Zuka like wakes her up. That's right. Yes, yes. And we both noted that we were like, she looked different. Oh, it's because she doesn't have makeup on. This episode, she gets more and more disheveled as we go. I'm like indicating that what's happening on the inside is what's also happening on the outside. But it's also interesting, um, according to Avatar Wiki, that Azula's long hair, long and disheveled hair is evocative of a classic villainess in Japanese legend and kabuki theater. Um, Her name is Oiwa. O-I-W-A. She was a married woman whose husband killed her in order to marry a younger, wealthier woman. And thus her spirit was enraged enough to cross back over to the land of the living where she exacted a bloody revenge. Which I think sounds interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that is, I thought about that stuff because there, there, there are just, there are images from like, um, from, uh, films like Ugetsu or Kurosawa movie I mean, throughout throughout all of this we've talked about kind of different um, uh, Japanese film references so I think that's that seems right on point I love that hmm. um, so from here we cut back to the airships so again like last episode a lot of cutting back and forth um, we see Saka, Suki and Toph and they're sneaking towards the bridge of the ship that they're on and we see Toph knock on the metal door in the like shave and a haircut uh, kind of knock <laughs> and on the last knock the door the big huge metal door falls in and then she jumps on top of it and metal bends this like suit of full body armor it's so cool um <laughs> to, you know and it, it surrounds all of her body so <clears throat> i love that it's been a long time a long time ago that season season two that, that she learns to metal bend or is it season three i'm trying to remember Mm. it's season two it's yeah it's, it's season, season two. two yep yep yeah you know and it's this like the first time she does it it's this kind of amazing thing that she's able to do this and now this is something she has become a master of and people still don't expect this as a possibility mm-hmm. so she's in this, this suit of metal armor and we see the fire soldiers start to shoot fire at her uh, but the armor protects her and then she starts to metal bend pieces of the, the bridge um, to take out different uh different members of the uh of the crew and kind of pin them to the walls and then she does this bananas thing where she like jumps up to the ceiling because the ceiling's also made of metal so she's able to attach to that and like crawls in her metal suit across the ceiling and drops down behind the captain of the ship i mean it, it looks like something from like a horror movie or something like it is this this weird thing of like watching this person jump up and crawl and crawl this like weird metal figure jump up and crawl across the the ceiling um and then she takes out uh she takes out the the captain um and then uh at this point she pronounces she throws off the armor and says that's how it's done um and uh do you have thoughts on on this sort of hero moment for top man i was so excited by it like so all of these things happen. The scene is so brief because it goes by so quickly. Um, and it's cool how adept she is at 
metal bending, how all we've seen of metal bending so far is we've heard them reference it and we've seen her do it, but it's only ever been with direct contact. And now we have her like metal bending and bringing metal towards her just like she would with earth. And like, she doesn't need to be touching it, which is, I think shows that she has now mastered this like other element. I mean, it is a part of her element, but like hybrid elements. Um, and to be the person in the room (laughs) and hear a door knock and then watch that display. Like, I don't know what I would have done. Right. And it's like, she does it wordlessly and immediately. And it's just like, what just happened? Because you're right. (laughs) It happens really fast. It makes me wonder, like, we often talk about Toph as probably the most powerful earthbender we've seen, but we also say that same thing about Boomy. And I just, Mm. I don't know if there's a metric or a way to know this, but like, who do you think is, is a, is just surely as a, as an earthbender who is more powerful? You know, if I had to choose, I think I'd say Toph. And I think Boomy would be like, yeah, Toph. (laughs) Don't you? I kind of agree. I kind of agree. And I, and I think, I think in part because, I think Boomy's probably done everything he can do. Mm. And I feel like Toph is still becoming. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's like 10 or 11 and, and, and like <laughs> and is continuing as we watch her over the course of these two seasons. Like she keeps like leveling up, inventing new things or discovering new things. Even the idea that she's like a sandbender now or before she was blind in the sand. Mm. So, yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. So after she throws off the armor, um, Sokka and Suki come in and Sokka says, time to take control of the ship. Take the wheel. And Toph says, great idea. Let the blind girl steer the giant airship. And Sokka says, I was talking to Suki, which (laughs) I I like because like it's been a while since we've addressed the Toph blindness. Mm. Um, And especially when we have like these like super powered displays from Toph, it's also helpful to remember who she is. Right. And that she also has these, she has this great power, but she also has these limitations that she needs to, um, she needs to wrestle with. Plus it sets up one of my favorite moments in the show, which is coming um, in a few scenes. Um, So Suki asks about what they're going to do with the rest of the crew. And Sokka comes up with the plan and he tells Suki to uh, fly the ship down close to the water And he grabs the ship's intercom and does this sort of affected voice. And he says, attention crew, this is your captain speaking. Everyone, please report to the Bombay immediately for hot cakes and sweet cream. We have a very special birthday to celebrate. And from here, we see all of the ship's crew leave their stations of like shoveling coal into the, um, into the furnaces and everything else. Um, uh, And outside we cut to outside the ship and we see their airship, breaking ranks from from the group and going down towards the water below them. Um, and then we get this very funny moment in the Bombay where everybody, all the, the crew are just kind of standing around. So it's a bunch of like fire soldiers and dude, like big muscular dudes with masks and stuff like this. And they're all kind of mingling, waiting to see what's going to happen. And we see two crew members introduce themselves to each other and they're like, wow, this is a big airship. You know, I, I never met you before. Um, and we see another soldier break into the conversation and says, I can't believe Captain remembered my birthday. He really does care. And then all of a sudden, the uh, bomb bay doors open and the whole crew is dropped into the water below. So we see the crew floating. And uh, one of the guys in the earlier conversation wishes, wishes the other guy a happy birthday. 
Um, <clears throat> I loved this because this is also a way to like, how do we dispense with the crew without like mm-hmm. making it be this big violent thing? Like they were able to make a joke out of emptying that ship out. Yes. And I felt that joke so deep inside of me of the of the like forced happy hours or the forced <laughs> social engagements where you're just like nervous laughing laughing with somebody and um yeah it was amazing well i mean it feels a little bit like uh, like the office or something like oh mm. we gotta get together to celebrate a birthday it also it also touches on one of the the things um that i've always thought would be interesting which is like exploring the life of like a uh empire soldier in star wars who just works on the death star because there's i mean the death star is the size of a planet there's thousands of people maybe tens of thousands of people who work on that and it's like what does their day-to-day life look like (laughs) and what i love is within a few seconds we just get this little image of the fact that they that these people are are human beings who have lives as well yeah and thrilled about the sweet cream and the hotcakes and uh, apparently the two so it's not credited but I think it was in one of the um, commentaries, but the two writers, Mike, uh, like the head writers, Mike DiMartino and Brian, I'm going to butcher his last name, Konetsko. Um, they were the voices of those two airship engineers who were like having the small talk. So like what a fun little thing to have at the end of your series. I wondered about that because kind of like when Serena Williams was on it, it sounded like such a like, they sounded like particular voices where, where, you know, it didn't sound like somebody trying to be a generic fire nation soldier. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Cause I actually was like, huh, I should look up who these people are. Cause I wonder if those are also, you know, kind of guest stars and these little, little bit parts, but I, I really love that. So after we see them fall into the water, we cut back to the bridge um, and we see Sokka, and uh, Toph and Suki set their eyes on Ozai's ship. I mean, their their plan is to go take out Ozai's ship. Mm-hmm. From here, we cut back to the Fire Lord's palace, and we see Azula looking even a bit more bedraggled and paranoid. And we see her two elderly teachers, uh, Lee and Lo, enter. And they're concerned. They say, Azula, we heard what happened. Why have you banished your servants? All of your daily agents and the Imperial firebenders. Azula says none of them can be trusted. Sooner or later, they all would have betrayed me, just like May and Ty Lee did, which was a really, really interesting moment because this is the first time I think that she has addressed uh, May and Ty Lee in this sort of sense that they, um, you know, that they betrayed her. Mm. Yeah, I think it's important that that was mentioned uh, because when I, I mean, hmm, it was hard because I know we had the beach episode and like there were moments where you feel for Azula and you empathize with her and yet you need to remember as viewers that she is evil, like that she's an evil person. And so I think they needed to have this, like her becoming more and more like um, chaotic and like um, paranoid, but to do it in a way that's not just like uh, convenient, but instead saying like, Hey, 
yeah, you do remember that beach episode and you remember that she is actually really good lifelong friends with these two people and they did betray her or um, she sees it as betraying her rather than siding with Aang, right? Um, So I'm glad that they address that. I'm glad that that's the reasoning behind the paranoia. It makes a lot of sense. Well, and it it also points to like a real hurt. Mm. Because we know that Azula, I mean, think about this. How many friends do you see Azula with? Over the course of the show. She's in a lot of this show. Those seem like the only real friends that she had. Mm. And, and they, you know, to her mind, they betrayed her. Um, Mm. She doesn't see herself as betraying anything. (laughs) Um, But I, so I like the fact that they sort of address this as like, this is a real, a real pain, a real hurt that she has. And this is why she's, why she's lashing out in this kind of paranoia. So we'd see the the two mentors speak in unison and say, Azula, we are concerned for you and your well-being. And Azula kind of reads into this, what they're saying. And she says, my father asked you to come here and talk to me, didn't he? He thinks I can't handle the responsibility of being Fire Lord, but I'll be the greatest leader in Fire Nation history. So I also found that comment interesting because she is, we get a little uh, window into her a little bit. So she she is concerned that her father both gave her this position, but also is going to take it away from her or doesn't think that she is um, fit to do this. Cause I think she was genuinely hurt mm. in the Phoenix King episode when she wasn't taken along on the plan, even though she's given this, this position of fire Lord, it's, it's both a promotion. And then that position is itself demoted, you know, under mm. the Phoenix King. Mm. So Lo and Lee say, well, I'm, I'm sure you will be this great, uh, this great fire lord. But considering everything that has happened today, perhaps it's best you postpone your coronation. Which is the wrong suggestion to make. Um, <laughs> because she snaps at this and asks which one of them said that. And they both point to each other. And Azula says, what a shame. There's only one way to resolve this. You two must duel each other. I order you to fight in Agni Kai. To which Lo and Lee respond, but we're not firebenders, which is interesting because I thought they were. I assumed they were her teachers. Yeah, I thought they were firebenders, too, and that we just hadn't seen them wield any fire. And yet they're not. I don't I'm so confused at what their role is and who they are. Yeah, I mean, I think that they are mentors to the 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 crown princess. I mean, that that's all I can assume, right? Mm. That they're um you know, that they were probably raised her from childhood or especially once um, uh, once Ursa was off the table, that these are the people who were basically her brought in to be her mother figures. Mm. Um, but it is interesting because I also assumed that, you know, what Iroh was to um, was to Zuko, Lo and Lee were to Azula, which they are. But Iroh really is teaching Zuko firebending, which also makes you wonder, like, where is Azula learning firebending from? Who is her master? Right. Because when we've seen Lo and Lee mentoring her, it's when she's using lightning or when she's. She, yeah, I think she was using lightning um, uh-huh. on the on the ship. Right. And it makes me wonder if it's like she has such raw power that she doesn't really need a firebender to tell her how to do it. She needs somebody to say like control your emotions control like these inner parts of you um 
almost more like <laughs> like a therapist than like a, a skill. You know what I mean, though? Like yeah, she needs she needs somebody. wise counsel. Yeah. 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 And it's like they don't need to be firebenders to do that. And in fact, maybe it's better to not be a firebender to do that. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I mean, maybe they were each given the teacher that they needed, which makes me think if that's the case, then I wonder if Ursa did actually set this up mm. because I can't imagine Ozai being good at assigning, you know, teachers and mentors to his. He doesn't seem like a particularly good father, understands his children very well. So yeah. I'm, I'm a, and, I, and I also can't imagine that um, Ozai would set... Um, Iroh up with with Zuko, so I'm so I want to believe maybe that these were things that were both both arranged by Ursa. Mm. So they say that they're not firebenders. And Azula says, "All right, fine. Lo, you're banished. Lee, you can stay." And she walks away, and Lo and Lee look at each other because Azula called Lo Lee, so they're not sure which one of them is banished. It's a good. It's just a good visual joke where you have these two identical characters. <laughs> From here, we cut back to, or we cut to for the first time, Bossing say, and we see the White Lotus preparing for their attack. And Iroh says, uh, only once, uh, only once in a hundred years can a firebender experience this kind of power. And this is where I was reminded that, like, oh, Iroh also is, I mean, he's maybe the most powerful firebender. We don't really know, but he can harness this, um, he can harness this comet as well. Yes. So he focuses on the comets um, in sort of, or excuse me, focuses and sort of summons the comets power. And he's like inhaling deeply and we see the flames around him grow with each, um, with each breath. Then uh, he roars and sends this massive fireball at the fire nation stronghold in Bossing say, this is the first time we've in this episode, I think we've seen somebody actually harness the comets power. And what we're going to see throughout the rest of this episode is, firebending like we've never seen it before like mm. on a scale that we've never seen it before um so then we see boomy earthbend the slab of rock that they're standing on to move them towards the city <clears throat> paku bends a huge tidal wave over the wall uh, of the fortress and piando slides on the frozen wave and attacks the fire soldiers with his swords can we can i just jump in and say piando is like amazing he doesn't have bending ability, right? Right. And he is like just going with it. This guy is incredible. Like, if and I mean, look, you know, my heart is with Boomy, and also Iroh is amazing. Zhang Zhang's hair in this is incredible. Like, he's just like flying above the city on like a like a thing of fire, and has like just the most amazing hair. And yet, Piandao is like in the middle of it taking down soldiers like holding his own with the most powerful firebenders at this point well and i like how he <clears throat> works in concert with paku mm. you know and first i was like wow that's amazing that they can work so well together when they've just just met but then i realized well, they have just met this is the white lotus like they probably learned from each other over a long period of time that they they know how to work in concert because you see you see paku both creating that sort of icy tidal wave and then he's creating these like water shields as fires coming at them and he's creating the setup for um for Pianda to take out these soldiers yeah i i, I really he's Pianda is one of my favorite characters so um i i'm always excited to see the non-benders get to really flash their stuff mm. um so from there we see 
uh, we see Zhang Zhang and he's kind of got the, uh, what we've learned in the last uh, probably five or six episodes that firebenders can like basically create jetpack feet. Like they can <laughs> shoot fire out of their feet and use that to, uh, as a sort of a propulsion to fly. So it's like, he's flying up above the city and it's like the city is built like a wheel, right? There's all mm. these roads that are spokes and there are all these fire nation tanks there. And he is, Again, because he can harness the comet, he's just like taking out these columns of tanks. Um, now, when I saw Bossing say this way, and I saw these tanks rolling through this city that sort of built off these big wheels, I couldn't help but think about the liberation of Paris in World War II. Mm. It has a very light, like like that that circle where where um, where Zhang Zhang's above. Like if the Arc de Triomphe was there, I'd be like, "Yep, this makes perfect sense. This is this is the Allies coming in and." And kicking out the Nazis from Paris. So, um, and I love the idea that that Iroh himself will at some point. I hope we get to see him liberate the Jasmine Dragon personally. You know, in the same <laughs> way that uh, that Hemingway liberates uh, Shakespeare and Company, right? Like, like I want to see Iroh. I want to see Iroh have that moment. But that's it. Was at this point when I realized that that's what their story arc is. It's liberating Bossing Say, like the liberation of France, which is amazing because when you think about it, it's like. Man, I feel like so many stories or even history is like the young people are the ones doing the liberating and the older people are the ones destroying or like taking down these these like big powers, right? And here you have a reversal where it's like the older folks are like, nah, man, we're the liberators and the young ones are the ones that are doing like 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 taking down powers. It's just it's super sweet. I love that they yeah. did it that way. Well, and it's fun to see benders at this level. I mean, these are the master, master, masters of the different elements, like getting to see them use their power. I mean, Paku's probably the most powerful waterbender in the world. Boomy's, along with Toph, the most powerful earthbender. Iroh, I would argue, is potentially the most powerful firebender. Like, it is kind of cool to see what they're capable of. Yeah. So from here, we cut back to the Fire Lord's palace and we see Azula standing in front of a huge mirror and she's trying to fix her hair. Um, so because, as we said, her hair has been down this whole time and now she's she's trying to like put it up um, the way she normally has it. And she's frustrated because she can't get it right. And she starts to talk to her hair and she says, all right, hair, it's time to face your doom. So at this point, we know she's like over the edge at this point and she grabs the scissors and cuts off big chunks from her hair. So would um, so when we see her now, her hair is like like her bangs are cut at a weird angle because she's just snipping off the stuff that that is in her way. Mm-hmm. And we see her staring kind of maniacally into the mirror, and she hears a familiar voice, the voice of her mother. And so we hear we hear and see Ursa behind her in the mirror. So Ursa says, "What a shame! You always had such beautiful hair." So she now sees her mother standing in the mirror and Ursa says, I didn't want to miss my own daughter's coronation. And Azula says, don't pretend to act proud. I know what you really think of me. You think I'm a monster. And we've heard her say this before. We've heard Azula say that her mother thought she was a monster before. Now, what's interesting is we've never heard uh, Ursa say that to Azula. And i from what I know of Ursa, I can't imagine that she ever said to her daughter, you are a monster. Mm-hmm. But somewhere Azula um, internalized this, you know, whether it, whether it is 
Ozai saying that about her mother, whether that is her just, I mean, when you think about, you know, when you have kids, especially little kids, there's sometimes this sense of like, you don't realize the meanings of the words that you say to them. So like, again, we're seeing at the same time, we're seeing uh, one of the more evil characters in the show. We're also seeing her trauma as well here. You know, as I think about that echo of I'm a monster, my mother thought I was a monster. I think that's, that's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me even think like, I wonder who, I wonder if people planted that in her. I wonder if her dad planted that in her. Like, we don't know. And it is not the voice of a mother that would say that a good mother would not ever say something like that. So it's like, yeah, I, I feel like perhaps Ozai might've said something, but that's a speculation, obviously. Well, and, and, and let's face it, Ursa and Ozai have a a broken relationship. So, (sighs) You know, when you think about divorce stories, it could be that this is the thing he's telling his children about their mother and especially Azula. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about things we've never seen, but um, I think it's interesting to imagine this. So Ursa says, I don't think she says, I think you're confused all of your life. You've used fear to control people like your friends, May and Ty Lee. Um, and Azula says, but what choice do I have? Trust is for fools. Fear is the only reliable way. Even you fear me. And Ursa says, no, I love you, Azula. I do. And we see Azula snap and grab the brush and hurl it at the mirror. And the mirror shatters. And as we pull back, we see that Ursa was not actually in the room. Mm-hmm. So this also has a little bit of like, Shakespearean Macbeth stuff to me because we also have ghosts showing up to like you know whether Ursa is <clears throat> is dead and this is really Ursa's ghost which I don't think that's the case or this is just part of her um, mental part of Azula's mental collapse is now dealing with these messages she's been given her whole life and putting them in the character of her mother yeah I think it's very interesting though what her mother says to her because that's not necessarily the stuff that I think Azula would say would like put into the mouth of her mother. So it kind of makes you wonder, what do we make of this scene? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, it is, you're right. It's totally has a feeling of being a haunting. Um, Even if we don't know if Ursa has passed or not, but um, yeah, I, Hmm. I don't know. What are your, what is your take on it? What do you think about the different, because I, I agree with you. I think that Azula wouldn't have put those words in her mother's mouth at the same time. I know that uh, the way that we talk to ourselves, like our inner monologues can be quite contradictory and who knows? I mean, maybe it's a voice she, she wants to hear. Maybe it, there's so many things it could be, especially with someone who's at this level of like mental decline, like she is. I don't know. Here's here's my take on it is that this is this is Azula battling between what she's been told and what she's actually experienced. So I actually think the things she's hearing Ursa say here are some of them are things that her mother actually said to her, right? Even the stuff about May and Ty Lee, I'm sure as a little child her mother was saying that stuff to her, like because she can see her like mistreating her close friends, right? So it may be 
memory, actual memories of her mother wrestling with the image of her mother that she's created or been handed or constructed over time. So the image of my mother thought I was a monster. This explains me. But then there's also the reality of like, but this is actually what I know she said, or I can, or I have these, maybe there are even memories that she's sort of repressed that are coming out during this, this kind of mental break and that she's kind of in battle with those things. Cause I don't think it's, this show is open to the ghost of Ursa showing up because there we have spirit world and stuff like that but we have none of the spirit world iconography in this i mean if she was in like a little blue kind of halo i'd be like okay well you know that's pointing towards spirit world but this just appears like she's having she's wrestling with memory i think yeah yeah and i mean yeah the way i mean if you think about memories that we have of people like we'll tend to have We'll tend to focus on just good memories or just bad memories. And so like, it is a conflicting thing, especially the more, you know, and love somebody, the more it's like these overlapping good and bad memories about somebody like can exist in tandem. And uh, yeah, it's just really fascinating. It's such a cool scene. I also love how um, Azula, who is perhaps the most Machiavellian figure we have in the show in terms of understanding power and manipulating basically articulates Machiavelli here when you know she's basically answering the question is it better to be feared than love she's like well fear works you know um and trust is for fools fear is what works and it's like Mm. well yep she's read the prince that's yeah that's definitely uh definitely what we see from Azula there absolutely so from here we cut back to the Fire Nation airships and they're approaching the Earth Kingdom mainland and Ozai is on the bow of the lead ship preparing for his assault we see Sokka, Suki, and Toph are in pursuit of Ozai's ship, but they realize that they're not moving fast enough to catch him. And this is one of the things that I wondered is when they got rid of the crew, what was the crew, what was a, what did we see a lot of the crew doing uh, before they got sent down to Bombay? Weren't they like, I don't know, stoking fires or something? I don't know the phrase for it. <laughs> yes, they were. They were shoveling coal into the furnaces, which is what powers the ship. So when right. you get rid of all of the people doing that work, the ship's not going to go that fast. Yes. So, so, so it is sort of interesting that it's like, oh, they probably like, they probably also shot themselves in the foot a little bit there. Uh, because- yeah. I was watching it with Mike and he was like, I feel like they need those people. Yes. <laughs> yes, true. And it's not like it's not like the people in the furnaces are see where the ship is going. So it's not like that, you know, that those people are going to be like, hey, why are we headed this direction? They're in the you know, in the belly of the ship. But at any rate, mm. it explains why they couldn't catch up with uh, the Ozai ship, even though they were going kind of full speed, uh, full steam ahead. <clears throat> so we see Ozai summon the power of the comet and create a huge continuous blast of fire that he starts raining down on the earth below. And this is not like firebending that we've ever seen before. Um, and it's kind of cool because we see like thousands of birds flee the land as it's, I mean, it is this, just enormous like furnace blast continuous furnace Mm. blast of fire it's really cool it's really cool depiction of the power of this comet and what it looks like when it's harnessed by i mean this is even bigger than what we saw iroh do when he sent that fireball right we and we keep hearing people say like oh that it's the end of the world like this like this will be the end that's all we have you know like when they're trying to convince june to help them they're like the end of the world is at stake or the whole world is at stake and it's like 
yeah, actually, this is pretty apocalyptic. <laughs> this mm. looks like things are going to end. Yeah, and then we we actually are seeing oh, the plan that Ozai laid out um, in the war room. Like this is what he talked about. Like we're going to come and just rain fire down on everything. Mm. <clears throat> so on a pillar of stone that's amidst a forest of stone pillars in front of Ozai, we see Aang with Momo um, on his shoulder. And as as Ozai's ship approaches, Aang tells Momo it's time for him to go, and we see Momo fly off. Now, I made note of this um, <clears throat> because I still feel like they've seeded so much that like Momo has this significant role to play. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, is he having Momo flee because there's going to be a fight and Momo's in danger? Or is Momo on a mission from Aang? Is Aang mm-hmm. sending Momo to go do something that's going to be important. I feel like he's it's 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 significant that we see him sort of have Momo go. No, it could be because we know Momo's with him so we have to get him out of this fight. <laughs> but I want to believe he sent uh he sent on a mission there. Mm. Um so we see Aang begin to sort of you know start to kind of deeply breathe and prepare for Ozai. Uh and he begins firing discs of rock at the motors of Ozai's ship. And we see Ozai ships start to go down. So, I mean, Aang's first attack is pretty successful, actually, right? To take out Ozai's ship. And Aang sends a huge blast of fire at Ozai's ship. So he also seems to, as you were talking about, seems to be summoning the power of the comet because we've never seen Aang firebend like this before either. Mm-hmm. Um, which leads you to think in the fight with Ozai, like Aang should be at an advantage almost because he has this powerful firebending but also can bend all these other things as well. Um, and we see Ozai st- standing on the, the bow of his ship that's about to go down. And he like strips off his, you know, Phoenix King garb um, and jumps from the, uh, the crashing ship onto one of the rock pillars nearest Aang. And we see them kind of in this like showdown at this moment. Uh, and from Sokka's ship, uh, they see that Aang has returned and taken out Ozai's ship. And all of a sudden, they're filled with hope, right? Because they weren't sure where Aang was. Was Aang going to be there to do anything? And now they see that Aang is there facing Ozai, which is sort of where they sort of saw the story pointing as well. Mm. Um, so back to Aang and Ozai facing off. Um, Ozai, at this point, as a good villain does, makes a speech. He says, after generations <laughs> of Fire Lords failed to find you, now the universe delivers you to me as an act of providence. Which makes me mm. wonder, does like Ozai believe in providence? Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. I was like, is this uh, some kind of like theocratic type of view of like, I am the Fire Lord and I, it is because God ordained it. And like, what is he, or is this just him using words? Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, it, it is interesting because we have, I mean, this is a show that has deeply religious components to it, but the religious components are tied to things like the, the, the person of the avatar, which is a, the very thing that he's trying to destroy. Yeah. So I mean, I guess I guess you could say this about uh, Ozai, that he believes in God and he feels like it's his job to destroy him. I mean, that seems yeah. to be kind of what he's up to. So I guess Providence could play into that as well, that there is this larger narrative that he's playing a role in. But I just thought that um, choice of language was really interesting. Oh, same. <clears throat> so Aang says, please listen to me. We don't have to fight. You have the power to end it here 
and stop what you're doing. Ozai says, you're right. I do have the power. I have all the power in the world. Can I just say, I love this moment because it's like Ozai is like that person that doesn't hear the whole thing. And we all do this at different times. I know I do this a lot, but it's like word association. And it's just like the only word he caught onto is power. And he's like, yeah, you're right. I am powerful. <laughs> it just feels <laughs> like uh, it, it made me laugh. So at this point, <clears throat> he, you know, he says, I have all the power in the world. And he looks up and he starts to breathe fire, this huge stream of fire from his mouth. Um, and he's shooting it down from his two hands, which I think is an image we've seen before, or we've seen a vision of this image, I think all the way back at the, um, I didn't look this up, but in my mind, it was winter solstice part two, when he has the first, first has the vision of the comet. I think he sees, um, I don't think that we know it's Sozin at the, or we know that it's Ozai at the time, but I think we see him like breathing fire up into the sky. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. You're right. It's in his visions. We see it really briefly. Now I want to go back and see that episode and, and, and realize that, that even this moment was seated in there. Cause this is like, um, Ozai's ultimate expression of this is what it means to have power, which is also interesting that that's his choice is to, it's just like this explosive thing is what power is. To yeah. Him. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, he looks like a dragon. Yes, absolutely. Um, so we see him send a shockwave of fire across the landscape and he and Aang begin their battle. So, you know, if this whole arc of this show really is leading up to this confrontation between Aang and um, Aang and Ozai, this is where the end begins. This is where they, they start their battle. So we cut back to the Sakasuki Toph airship and they're looking on and Sokka is rooting for Aang and Suki says, shouldn't we be helping him? And Sokka says, the Fire Lord is Aang's fight. We need to stay focused on stopping that fleet from burning down the Earth Kingdom. And Toph asks how he plans to do that, since she can't even see anything beyond the airship that they're in. And Sokka looks and thinks for a moment, and then he yells out, airship slice, as as his plan. Um, And I love that we spent 60-some episodes um, preparing for this moment where we've seen Sokka as the planner and like... To the point where when he says that, instead of me being like, oh, this sounds ridiculous, I'm totally ready to be like, this is going to be a great plan. Whatever he has in mind, it's going to be a great plan. Yeah. And um, so I do think everyone had their moment, their like moment to shine. I think Toffs was when she was just metal, metal bending the crap out of that room. And I think that this is now Sokka. Like Sokka is the hero in this scene. It, it made me think of like Han Solo style like suave a step ahead of people um yeah he this is great it's great great scene so Sokka takes control of the airship and drives them to the left flank of the air fire nation ships so they're all kind of lined up in formation as they're approaching the land and we see the leaders on the bows of the other airships which have now reached the land start to also rain down fire on the land below, just like Ozai did. Um, Which also leads you to think like all of these firebenders are crazy powerful right now too. Like I keep thinking the comet is about something that Ozai is going to do, but it's about the whole fire nation and all firebenders. 
So this is one of my favorite moments in this episode. We see Toph staring down at this, at all these ships raining fire down. And we just see the like reflected light on her face. And Toph stares down, feeling the heat and says, whoa, that's a lot of fire, isn't it? So it's almost like she can almost see it. It's that bright and hot and powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where I think <laughs> reminding us earlier that she's blind helps create this moment where you realize like, this is, this is how, how um, dark of a moment this is that even somebody who can't see can see it. Mm-hmm. And also she says it in a way that she seems terrified, but also in awe. And I think it's, it also plays back to what Suki was saying about like, there is something beautiful about a display like this. And yet not when you know what it's intended for. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think awe is big, uh, maybe a key way to understand a lot of this episode. Cause there's mm-hmm. things, there's a lot of things that, that there is a kind of a beauty in this raw power, but there's also this destructive potential in it as well. Mm-hmm. So we see Sokka now lined up perpendicular with the other airships that are all in a line. And he sets the airship to full speed and says, we need to get out to the top of this thing fast. Suki says, then what? And Sokka says, watch each other's backs. And if we make it that far, I'll let you know. And he gives her a kiss. And this is, uh, you said a Han Solo moment. And this feels like a very Han Solo moment where it's like, he's kind of taking control at this moment. And he's, basically just saying to everybody like trust me and he's yeah like yeah i i really this is this is the hero moment now i will say i don't know that suki's had a hero moment yet mm. in this um, in this so I'm, I'm hoping that we don't get to the end of the finale without seeing suki sort of show herself because her great hero moment so far is uh in boiling rock uh and i just i just i want to see a little bit more of that so as the Sokka's airship is now cutting across the, uh, the other airships, it's sort of creating wreckage among um, each airship. So, I mean, when he says airship slice, it, I mean, you could really think about he's using his ship like a sword cutting across the top of the fleet of airships. Um, and we just see wreckage coming um, from ship to ship to ship, creating havoc in the sky. Um, and we see their airship falling apart piece by piece. Um, as it takes out the other ships. Uh, and as they reach the top of their ship, they start to run towards the front. Um, and it's really interesting. Sokka is holding Toph's hand, presumably because she can't see very well in the air. She can't sense where she is very well. So he wants to make sure she doesn't get, um, she doesn't get lost. Um, and Suki is running behind them. And their ship starts to split. Um, and... Suki is on one side and Sokka and Toph are on the other are on the other. So like they get literally divided up in the air. Um, and we see Suki land on one of the others, the tops, one of the other ships. And she yells, I'm okay. Just finish the mission. We see Sokka and Toph are blown from one ship to another. And Sokka covers Toph with his body to protect her from falling debris. So we have this moment where, um, this is the last we're going to see of them in this episode. And it's in, mm-hmm. so this is the first of the potential all is lost moments. They do this very successful thing to take out these airships, but they're now up in the air with uh, no ability to potentially save themselves. They're divided. So Suki's on one ship that's going down. Sokka and Toph are on another ship that's going down. 
Right. And it's like in one of these situations in the past, you would have Millennium Appa fly in, but he is with um, with Zuko and Katara. Yeah. So it's like we don't really know what's going to happen in a whole other part of the world. And I don't think Millennium um, Momo is a thing, especially that can save three people from falling. Right. You know, and the only the only bender they have is Toph and Toph is an earthbender who's literally up in the air. So um, mm. they, they really do seem stuck. Yeah. Up in the air above an expansive ocean. So it's like, I don't know how much she can do. Right. Right. Um, so so this this episode is going to end with all three of our storylines sort of hanging in the balance. So this is the first one of those storylines hanging. So we cut back to the Fire Nation Palace, um, and it's the coronation ceremony in full swing with just Azula and the Fire St- Sages in attendance. Everyone else has been banished. Everyone else is gone. So it is not a big celebratory day. It is Azula and the people necessary to crown her. And we see the fire sage say, by the decree of Phoenix King Ozai, I now crown you fire lord. And he pauses as he notices something up in the sky. And Azula is upset that he hesitates. And at this point, we see Appa fly in with Zuko and Katara. And Zuko says, sorry, but you're not going to become fire lord today. I am. And Azula says, you're hilarious. Katara says, and you're going down. And the fire sage is about to put the crown on Azula, but Azula stops him. So this is interesting. Like she's like, okay, I want to deal with this before I'm crowned. She says, uh, wait, you want to be fire Lord? Fine. Let's settle this. Just you and me, brother, the showdown that has always been meant to be Agni Kai. And this felt like a, like a fan servicey moment a little bit too, <laughs> to just be like, this is exactly what the fans wanted. She even, she even knows, the fans want it this is the showdown that was always meant to be sounds like the tagline for this episode or this part of this episode um not necessarily a line that a character would say Mm. so zuko says you're on and katara looks shocked she says what are you doing she's playing you she knows that she can't take out both of us so she's trying to separate us but zuko has a little bit of insight he says i know but i can take her this time Katara says, but even you admitted to your uncle that she would need help facing Azula. Zuko says, there's something off about her. I can't explain it, but she's slipping. In this way, no one else has to get hurt. It's like, obviously, Zuko, the way that something off about her, like she cut her bangs, you know? It's like, this is like the most obvious thing. It's like, come on, Zuko. She looks unhinged. There's well, Zuko off. <laughs> the point is that Zuko sees that it's it's that um, that Katara doesn't. That Zuko's like, uh, okay, yeah. yeah. Now, I what I love is there's a very ominous line here <clears throat> when he's like, okay, yeah, I'll fight the Agnikai because I know that I can beat her, and he says, in this way, no one else has to get hurt. Because mm. um, this implies, you know, there are rules to an Agnikai. The Agnikai is a one-on-one battle. I know that I can defeat her. And if we fight her together, there's a potential that even if we win, one of us can get hurt, right? Because mm-hmm. we need to be looking out for each other. So um, this is obviously a very, a very ominous line when we see where this goes in the episode. Right. So we cut to the empty Agni Kai grounds. I don't know what this like stadium area is called. <laughs> We've seen it before um, when Zuko faced his father, uh, but this time it's empty. There's nobody there looking on. 
nobody there watching. And Azula says, uh, I'm sorry it has to end this way, brother. Azuka just says, no, you're not. He knows that this is what she wants. Mm-hmm. And at this point, we get this very like balletic, epic image of Azula's blue fire against uh, Zuko's red. And this goes on. I mean, we're going to cut back and forth here, but this goes on for a while. And it's really, this is really some, again, some pretty gorgeous, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, filmmaking. I mean, it's, I think it's really, uh, this is some of the, some of the, the prettiest stuff that we've seen, even though it's mm-hmm. also like very violent siblings <laughs> at war with each other. Yeah. Um, pretty and striking because I think of the music too. So, uh, Apparently, the music and sound design, according to Avatar Wiki, uh, for Zuko and Azula's Agni Kai drew inspiration from Ghost in the Shell and Blade Runner, particularly in pairing the slow tempo and melancholy mood with an intense action scene and filtering down the sound of the fire effects in favor of the score. Yes, I have that in my notes that it is this like, it's this cool, like, it's both an orchestral score. Also, Mm -hmm. there's also like a, like a, 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 a drum that will occasionally beat and then also like the clacking of drumsticks too like mm. so you have you have this orchestral thing and then it's almost like this kind of like heartbeat and clack and you're right i mean that, that the the sound of the actual fight is both there but pulled down really low uh mm. and that is such a great choice mm. um yeah i mean it's 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 pretty amazing and even like the orchestra itself is like one it, it is not overdone. It's like one strong melody. Um, man, I don't know. I just wish we could play the music, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's great. It's definitely. I mean, some anybody listening to this, go back and just watch that fight and really pay attention to what they're doing mm-hmm. um, visually and and sonically because it, it really is pretty amazing. So we cut back to Ang facing Ozai uh, in this forest of stone pillars. And Ozai keeps attacking with huge sweeps of fire, but we see Aang counter. He evades and avoids using all kinds of bending. So he's, he's really like, he's like Avatar Aang at this point. Like he's, he's seamlessly using all of the elements around him to the point where it's like, I, sometimes I'm not even aware of which one he's using. And it's like, oh, that was air this time. And that this time he pulls rock from this, or there's a waterfall. So he pulls a big wave from that. But eventually, Aang is blasted back against one of the stone pillars, and he falls to the ground. And Ozai comes up to finish him, but at the last second, he bends himself kind of a rock armor suit and is able to protect himself and slip away. So we've seen him do this before. I think in the drill episode, he does the rock Mm -hmm. armor. It's very much like what uh, Toph does with the the metal armor. Um, So then we see Ozai start to lightning bend at Aang. Uh, and Aang continues to move and dodge. Um, Aang finds a place with good footing, and instead of dodging, he uses this as his moment to absorb the blast of lightning and redirect it. So as the lightning's coming into him and he's preparing to redirect it, at first he points back to Ozai. And Ozai, for the first time in this whole episode, maybe the first time in the whole show, looks genuinely afraid. Because he's staring down the avatar who's about to fire this huge bolt of lightning at him. And we have no reason to believe that Ozai has any ability or knowledge on how to redirect or how to absorb the lightning. 
because he's the one who you, who gives out the lightning, right? This is this thing that he that Iros, um, Iro invented, right? So he says other people don't even know how to do this. Mm. So Aang is first pointing towards Ozai, um, and then at the last minute, Aang opts for mercy and redirects the lightning just back into the sky. <clears throat> and at this point, Ozai looks pleased at Aang's perceived weakness, right? That he's chosen not to not to fire this, this powerful lightning bolt back at him. Uh, and Aang collapses to the ground after having redirected the lightning. And Ozai begins to fire again at Aang and blows him back off the pillar he's on. And he appears to be unconsciously falling to his death. And at the last moment, he awakens and bends the water below to catch him. And he looks up to see Ozai hurtling down towards him. So do you have thoughts on this Aang-Ozai battle? Yes, I do. Okay, so <laughs> it's interesting that, uh, like you were saying, we don't know that Ozai knows anything about redirecting lightning, but he knows that it is using, I mean, it is a kill shot that he's doing, right? Like, he knows the lightning shot is a kill shot, and if it's redirected at him, that is going to be a kill shot. And yet, we have not only Aang, but also Zuko, both redirected lightning, and both of them likely could have redirected it straight at him and killed him. But Zuko said uh, during the solstice, like, this isn't my, this isn't my task. This isn't my battle. Uh, This is up to the avatar. So Zuko, you could say he shows mercy or he just knows his destiny. And so he didn't uh, redirect lightning to kill his father. And then Aang show like ops for mercy and, and redirects it uh, away from him too. But it's interesting that it's like, he has had two moments where he could have died. And yet these two characters showed him or showed restraint. Yeah. So I'm thinking about the, uh, <clears throat> the avatar advice. Um, Roku mm. says, you know, you, you must be decisive. And, you know, again, I want to try to think about those in, in broad ways that like, is this, is that Ang being indecisive or is that Ang being decisive and saying, I am, I have planted my flag in the ground of I'm not here to kill you. I'm here to convince you not to destroy the world um, or to deal with this in some other way. So I, I, I found that moment um, really interesting. Um, and it, it does make me wonder kind of how, how is this battle going to get resolved? Cause it doesn't get resolved in this episode, but it makes me wonder how it, how it is going to get resolved. Mm-hmm. So from here, we cut away from that battle back to, uh, the Fire Nation capital, and we get what is one of my favorite shots, probably in the whole series, which is this wide shot of the the Fire Nation capital, and it's all dark. Like you can just barely make out the um, like the volcano top kind of thing, um, except that we see these huge plumes of red and blue fire as they're battling and it's it's again this is one of those things where to go back to suki's line like it's so beautiful to look at but you realize like it's also like this deeply violent troubling scene where siblings are trying to destroy each other um so so we see that um and uh this is where i feel like the we get a longer shot of the battle between these two we really get that music the music and sound cues hitting here um and finally, we see Zuko start to best Azula in the fight. She's looking even more bedraggled and desperate. And Zuko calls out to her, no lightning today? 
what's the matter? Afraid I'll redirect it? And Azula says, oh, I'll show you lightning. And she prepares a huge bolt of lightning while Zuko prepares to redirect. It. He's been prepared for this. He knows how to do this. He's done it before. And as she readies to fire the bolt of lightning, we see her eyes shift from Zuko to Katara, who's the only other person there standing watching this. Um, so she fires the lightning at Katara and Zuko notices this and leaps to absorb the blow to save Katara. And he appears quivering on the ground with electricity coursing through him. And we see Azula kind of stumble and laugh maniacally, kind of moving towards Zuko and towards, um, towards Katara. And this made me think of that thing that uh, Zuko says about, you know, this way, nobody else has to get hurt. And it's like, um, actually, Azula kind of breaks the rules of the Agni Kai here and says, well, no, I'm just fighting you. I'm going to fight something, someone that matters to you, and I'm going to put them, um, I'm going to mm-hmm. put them in danger. So we see Zuko, you know, we talked about sacrifice, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I had mentioned, I wonder, you know, are they going to, is somebody going to do a big self-sacrificial thing and maybe lay down their life for somebody else? Uh, so we have this potential for Zuko to be that person right now. Um, this is where we cut away from this story and we're not going to see any more uh, mm. in this episode. Uh, but this is, this is another pretty dark all is lost moment because you have Zuko potentially dead and destroyed. Mm. You have Katara in grave danger. No water seems to be around her. And she has this, you know, uh, unhinged Azula coming at her. Mm. Yeah. It reminds me of the scene we had earlier of the two siblings, like any, any moment in this episode makes me think back to when they were little, because we do have like uh, that scene with Ursa's ghost. (laughs) Um, And so it makes me think about uh, them at the pond with um, the duck turtles, were they duck turtles? Uh And it's like Azula knows that, Zuko's one weakness to her is that he can't like he is somebody who chooses love. And especially when you're thinking about her as this like Machiavellian type, that's like, if it's fear or love, I will go with fear because it is what keeps people in line. It is, you know, like it, it can be wheeled, like it is practical. It's pragmatic. And then, and like love is what will, take you down eventually like that is a weakness and here we have that embodied in a fight like and i don't know i think it shows how far we came with zuko to be like the zuko from season one would not likely have done anything close to that even for iroh like we saw him time and time again let iroh take the fall for him and then here we have uh him willing to do what is definitely um could like he knows that this could result in his death and yet he's willing to do that for somebody that used to hate him uh somebody that doesn't have the destiny of being the fire lord like there's nothing if you look at it in a way that or uh, azula would look at it he'd be, you'd be like why would he ever sacrifice himself for her you know yeah i mean it definitely is the culmination of a long story arc that's gone on for all of these episodes, you know, to sort of see 
to see Zuko do something this self-sacrificial. Um, and <clears throat> yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I really, I mean, I kind of felt like something like this was going to happen. That's why I was talking before about like, are we going to see somebody sacrifice themselves? Now, again, you know how this ends, so don't say anything, but like, I really, now I'm left wondering like, how far are they willing to go with this? Like, I can't, I can't imagine that like Zuko dies. I, I can't imagine that. That would be a gutsy, a gutsy move for for this show. Um, but I also wonder like how does he come back from this? You know, we've already seen uh we've already seen Katara like heal somebody from a lightning strike, but she had the magic water then and she doesn't have that now. And so yeah, I just I just don't know. Like like this is one where when they cut away from this, it's like I just can we just keep going with this story? Uh, because I'm, I desperately want to know what the next few seconds look like there. Mm. Now, another interesting thing is that um, when you, when, as when Zuko absorbs the lightning, it cuts away to a wide shot and you see the lightning, you see lightning shoot up out of the stadium, which made stadium, whatever the Agni high grounds is. Um, it led me to wonder did he redirect it? Did he was he able to redirect it into the sky, mm. or or did he just absorb it and it killed him? Like that's that's that it's unclear. There is definitely lightning that shoots out of the um, out of the Agni High ground. So so I have some hope that maybe that that's what it is. Because even Aang, when he directs the light redirects the lightning, he also collapses to the ground. So we see both Zuko and um, and Aang do this. Uh, and we've often seen them paralleled. So I'm curious because we cut away so fast. I don't know how to, how to read that, but, but we'll see that going forward. So we cut away from this scene uh, back to the Aang Ozai battle. Ozai is still hurtling towards Aang um, and Aang runs to the land and he bends a ball of rock around himself, which I thought was reminiscent of the iceberg, Right, the ball of ice that he hides in a hundred years ago during Sozin's comet, um, and Ozai walks up to it and says, "You're weak, just like the rest of your people. They did not deserve to exist in this world, in my world. Prepare to join them. Prepare to die." And he sends a huge blast of fire at Aang's rock iceberg hiding place, um, and that's where the episode ends. So we see uh, everyone in such deep peril. At the, uh, at the end of this episode um, thoughts that you have coming out of this episode as we move into the final 23 24 minutes of mm. this series well like you said like we've known I have watched this before <laughs> I have seen Avatar so I know and I, I remember the pieces of it resolving at the end and how things pan out so I don't want to say too much but I had this thought when I was watching it and I was amazed by Azula specifically. I think that this time around watching it, Azula's story is even more captivating to me. Um, the way that they, they had her, like you said, stumbling around uh, hardly able to even keep herself up be- and like looks drunken almost. Mm-hmm. And yet she's still able to use lightning. And I know that when we had been uh, learning about lightning from Iroh, when he was teaching Zuko, we learned that you need an incredible amount of control in order to use it. So 
that made me curious about like how she is able to maintain that. And yet everything else inside of her and outside of her is like clearly not functioning. Like she can hardly walk and she, she can't even really speak. She's just like laughing. And so it's curious to me to think of this fight in, in terms of what Iroh said about what lightning bending means. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I got to say this episode and they seeded the ground for this and things like the beach, like makes me oddly feel for Azula. Like, like I, I, she is the villain. She is as close as we get to sort of pure evil. Uh, I mean, Ozai is more, but like, she also is like a damaged child, you Mm -hmm. know? And like, I, I'm so glad that we had an episode like the beach. So we kind of had this stuff seeded in there and now we're seeing that kind of come to fruition. Um, I just thought this is a great Azula episode. Um, she became one of my favorite characters in this season because um, I just I just think she is she has uh, insecurities uh, and they, she is a pretty three dimensional villain for somebody who doesn't get too much airtime, too much storyline. Um, I, I feel like I understand her in particular kinds of ways, and when we know people who've had experiences like hers. So I actually, I really think she's a well-drawn character. So my, my thoughts on this episode, I mean, we have obviously this all is lost moment. So the big question that I have, and I asked my daughter this after we watched it is how much of the last episode will be still the fight? Mm -hmm. Like how quickly does that stuff get resolved? How much do we have post Ozai fight? to like tie together loose ends in this world because there are a lot of loose ends. Um, We have Ursa as a loose end. Uh, I mean, the fact that she shows back up here and it's been hinted that maybe she's alive. So I'm like, okay, I'm interested. I'm interested in that. Mm -hmm. Um, At least learning more about what exactly happened, how uh, maybe we weren't, we won't learn about how exactly Ozai usurps Iroh and takes the throne. Maybe we won't, Maybe we won't learn that. I feel like May and Ty Lee came back up in this episode, so I feel like we have to see them in in the finale. Um, for those people who are shipping different folks, I feel like we need to have relationships resolved. I don't need that, but I feel like the people need that, so I have that on my list. I rose tea shop. I really like. I want to see even a flash at the end even a wordless scene of Iroh and the Jasmine dragon. Like I want that really, really badly. <clears throat> and then honestly, cave crew, like what are, I cannot believe how long they have been just like, yep, we're just, we spent so much time rescuing these people and connecting to these people only to let them go. It is fascinating. What would you do if the, it was never re- like never mentioned? I see. This is why I wish Hakoda wasn't with them. Because mm. if Hakoda wasn't with them, they wouldn't need to address. Nobody's nobody's wondering about their storylines, but because Hakoda's there, like he's too central of a like motivating factor for uh, for Katara and Sokka that that it, they have to be resolved. I wish we never heard anything from them again, but Hakoda, ha- we have to. Yes. So yes. <laughs> so I then wonder- we also. Oh, go ahead. I wonder if Haru is going to still have facial hair. You think he took it off while in the cave? Maybe. Well, yeah. Maybe it grew out more even. It's been oh, a while. Be, 
Well, it hasn't really been that long, has it? It's been. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, maybe I would love to see the effects of being in the cave, you know, on on Haru's facial hair. Um, I mean, I think the big question is like, how does Aang defeat Ozai? I am working under the assumption that Aang defeats Ozai in some meaning of the word defeat. I have a hard time believing he kills Ozai. We may get a Chin the Conqueror kind of thing where it's like Ozai actually kind of destroys himself, which I guess I'd be fine with um, because they've at least seeded it in the story of Kiyoshi. But um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I just, I don't know how that's going to get resolved, but they've done so much to say, Aang is not going to just kill this guy or is he going to? So like I, they've done a, they've done a great job of pushing me in so many directions that I actually don't know. I don't know what they're going to choose and I don't even want to speculate. I just kind of want to, enjoy the story that they tell. I want to think about those pieces of advice and how those pieces of advice pay off mm. because they tend to do that in this show. They tend to uh, have those things pay off. Um, so I guess another storyline that I feel like doesn't need to be resolved, but I'm going to be really interested is like from the third episode of this show, Momo has been this like character we've been tracking and I just want to know, does he get some kind of moment of deep significance? Do we learn why he's so significant? Maybe we don't. And that's okay. No one's going to fault them if they don't. But I have a feeling that that's like uh, he's somebody who's going to have some kind of role to play uh, that's mm-hmm. important. Um, <clears throat> I'm curious if they're going to kill people. So mm-hmm. will we see Ozai or Azula die? I feel like. I can't imagine the story continuing with Ozai being alive because mm-hmm. he would need to like his heart would need to grow three sizes that day. I mean, he'd need to have like a <laughs> like a total turnaround. And like, I feel like he's past the point of rescue. Um, and so is Azula. Uh, I mean, like they this episode, like right? Yeah. Yeah. It's It seems like it. I just don't know. I don't know if in 24 minutes they can turn those folks around. So like. I just, I just don't understand. I don't know. Will we? Okay. Will we see the spirit world at all in, mm. in the last episode? Um, and will we get a time jump? I have. A, this is my prediction: is we're going to have the like moment of victory, and the world is going to be pretty beat up and destroyed at that point. And then we'll get a time jump, and I don't know how long the time jump will be. If it'll be like six months later or like 10 years later and we see them like i just don't know but i i really am curious to see the world rebuilt um and i imagine we're going to see a little bit of that and the only way to do that is with a time jump and then we get to see where what roles do these people play in this newly constructed world what roles does something like the white lotus play is it does that become the unifying force between the the different elements and nations or yeah, I don't I don't even know what the rebuilt world looks like, but that's yeah. what I'm curious. It's funny you mentioned Bossing Say too, because it seems like of of the different storylines we had, yeah, it's like all is lost except Bossing Say. Like right. <laughs> the the old guard is like seeming to do pretty well in Bossing Say. So it's like I yeah, I, man, personally I could go for like a whole season on just what happens after this in Bossing Say, but uh I wonder I'm excited to see how much of a glimpse we get of that, if anything. Yeah. Or just like a, a documentary on the liberation of Boston. <laughs> say, 
right? Li- liberation and reconstruction of Basingse. I would, I would watch that in minute detail about <clears throat> government structures and civil servants and how they rebuild the city and rebuild the culture. I'd totally yes. be interested in that. And like so. Iroh's letters home, like a, an Iroh voiceover, like reading those letters home. It yeah. would just be great. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. want it. I'm totally, totally here for that. Um, well, Annie, I think that's as far as we can go right now. I have not seen the finale. Oftentimes when we record these, I've seen the episode we're recording and the next one. But this time I purposely did not watch the last episode because I didn't want to have this conversation with any prior knowledge. So um, what I'm going to do, I presume this weekend is to start at the beginning of Sozin's Comet and watch the whole movie through because I also want to see how it feels as a complete work and, and not as episodes. Um, mm. But we uh, hopefully will be recording that episode next week. Uh, if you can hear from my voice, um, I am sick right now. Um, and there is kind of a sickness going around the globe uh, known as COVID-19, which I currently oh. have. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm recording this from home, um, but actually that means I have plenty of time while I'm in isolation to, uh, to watch avatar and prepare to talk about it. So hopefully we'll, record our final episode next week um and we will bring that uh we will bring that to you that's all the time that we have but we will be back soon hopefully next week with book three fire chapter 20 sozin's comet part four avatar ang <laughs> <laughs>